The following is a production of Art Trap Productions, brought to you by the Gallifreyan Embassy and has been made possible by supporting subscribers and donations from listeners like you. This episode brought to you by Pachak Supporting Subscribers. Go to arttrap.com slash Pachak Supporter to become a supporting subscriber. Support the show and get extra content and other bonuses. This episode brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download at audibletrial.com slash podshock. Over 85,000 titles to choose from for your iPod or MP3 player. This episode also supported by the Podshock Podcast Companion app for the iPhone, iPad, and iPod Touch, now in the iTunes App Store. Live from where you're not, it's Doctor Who, Podshock. The Gallifreyan Embassy presents Doctor Who Podshock, episode 302. Yes, 302. This is Louis Trapani, and as I said, you're listening to Doctor Who Podshock. And, and apologies for the last few weeks between scheduling um, further Superstorm Sandy aftermath issues that I needed to focus on. Uncle Sam, um, as I said, simple scheduling conflicts. There hasn't been any... New episodes of Doctor Who Podshock on the feed for for a little bit, and it's my fault, so I, I do apologize for that. Hopefully, that won't be happening too much going forward. Uh, to that end, if need be, there may be shorter episodes going out instead of none at all. Not unlike this episode that you're listening to right now, which will be a shorter than normal episode of Doctor Who Podshock. But have no fear, we're still having our longer shows, which... Uh, one of which will be uh, most likely our next episode, which we will be reviewing the Invasion of Time. So something to look forward to and maybe for you to watch between uh, this episode of Dr. Upachaka and our next. So, um, but, you know, speaking of Superstorm Sandy um, and its aftermath, uh, as, as most of you probably know, if you've been listening to the show, we were uh, thrown off the air, if you will, thrown off the net for a while while we were recovering from that. Uh, tomorrow we'll be having another environmental inspection. Though, by, well, actually, though, by the time you're listening to this, it will probably have come to pass. And I say it's another because we already had a couple of these last year, um, before and after the demolition process. So hopefully, this one uh, will go uh, smoothly for this upcoming one. You know, I'm still anxious to put this whole ordeal behind me. Um, There's Still some lingering issues that I need to address and deal with, though. Um, well, anyway, so on to matters relating to Doctor Who. That's why you're here. <laughs> well, I, I'm assuming that's why you're here. That's why I'm here. So we're still uh, in the waiting mode right now while they're shooting new episodes starring Peter Capaldi as the Doctor. Uh, but the new episodes will be here before you know it. It's, uh, well, I was going to say it's April, but it's actually May now. It's May already. So in reality, we're just a few months away from uh, new episodes being broadcast. And once they are being broadcast, we'll be reviewing them as they are broadcast, as they are transmitted or broadcast or whatever terminology that that, that fits your situation. Um, streaming, if as they stream, you know, um, you know, that's... that's <laughs> 
<laughs> a lot of Doctor Who fans are getting them that way now. It's on iTunes and uh, Amazon and, uh, well, you don't need me to tell you where to find it. And it's still the 50th anniversary. At least I'm still celebrating it. I'll be celebrating it until the 51st anniversary. So it's a year-long celebration. I know other fans are doing that, the sa- doing the same thing. This episode of Doctor Who Podshock takes a look back at some of the history of, of the series with a classic interview, at least a little segment of that history. Uh, so, But before we jump into that, let's jump into the news. Now, if you recall the 50th anniversary special, Day of the Doctor, well, I'm assuming you've seen it by now, so uh, minor spoiler alert if you haven't. Skip this news story, I guess. Um, But I'm sure every Doctor Who fan has probably seen it by now. Uh, During the 50th anniversary special, Day of the Doctor, as I said, we um, we see the War Doctor begin his regeneration into the Ninth Doctor, you know, a.k.a. Christopher Eccleston, but we never see that regeneration complete itself. Now there was a, uh, a fan made video that was done very well. I, I, unfortunately I can't recall the, the, the person that created it. Uh, we, it, it was on YouTube and we had it on our website, the org. So if you want to backtrack to, um, um, I don't know if it was, um, posted in December. I think it was probably December. Oh, actually the anniversary was in November. It could have been late November. Um, but most likely early December, um, or sometime in December that this video came out that uh, that a fan made that actually had the War Doctor um, regenerating into um, in, into what we see as the Ninth Doctor, uh, though we don't get to see that in the actual uh, anniversary special day of the Doctor. And Stephen Moffat has recently explained the reason behind that in a Doctor Who monthly, um, I mean, a Doctor Who magazine. This kind of dates me because I still call it Doctor Who Monthly. <laughs> Doctor Who Magazine. Why we didn't see the War Doctor regenerate into Christopher Eccleston. Um, now, he quote, now this is Stephen Moffat, quote, uh, a quote of his saying, uh, quote, It was one thing to include him among the other archive doctors as they flew in to save the day. In fact, it would have been disgraceful to, le- to, left, to have left anyone out. By placing him in that scene, we might have given them... Now he's talking about the scene, the regeneration scene. Now, by placing him in that scene, it might have given the impression that he actually turned up for filming. Or at least shooting. I don't think they used film. (laughs) Which would, of course, been crossing the line, end quote. Um, Well, (laughs) it's it's not an exact quote because I had my little ad libs I put in there. But uh, hopefully you detected the tone of my voice that... It was me speaking on... on and let me just requote that again. It was one thing to include him among the, arch, among the other archive doctors as they flew in to save the day. In fact, it would have been disgraceful to have left anyone out. By placing him in that scene might have given the impression that he actually turned up for filming, which would have been crossing the line. End quote. Okay, that's, that's, that's the quote um, from Stephen Moffat. So... Um, which I can understand. You know, I, I, when I saw, especially when I saw that fan-made video, I said to myself, oh, you know, this should have been in the, in the, in the special or whatever. But um, Christopher Eccleston did, unfortunately, had turned down appearing in the special. Um, as we reported previously, it was reported, I think, 
And if I'm, not, if I'm mistaken, I think it was also Doctor Who magazine that Stephen Moffat explained that the War Doctor character was actually going to be Christopher Eccleston's um, Doctor, the Ninth Doctor. And um, unfortunately, they couldn't reach an agreement with Christopher Eccleston to appear um, in the special. And um, so he declined to be in it. And um, so that that's when, you know, they he came up with the character to kind of the War Doctor character to kind of um, bridge that gap. So but now we know why the regeneration kind of stops, you know, halfway through it. I mean, it, it completes itself. But as far as uh, seeing it on the screen, it it cuts away. Matt Smith returns to sci-fi to play a, quote, major role and quote, opposite of Arnold Schwarzenegger in a series of new Terminator movies. He will play a, quote, a new character with strong connections, with a, with a strong connection to John Connor, uh, reports the BBC News. The first movie in the series is called Terminator Genesis and will be directed by Alan Taylor. Something to look forward to as far as, uh, you know, seeing Matt Smith again in, in science fiction and uh, and on the big screen. So um, I guess he has some, you know, I don't know. I don't know what character he's going to be playing. Um, I'm, you know, I can imagine um, strong connection to John Connor. Uh, I, I guess he's not going to be playing a, a Terminator itself. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, he's... He's had experience with Cybermen, so <laughs> having a, um, you know, the, the Terminators were androids, robots with uh, flesh exterior, so in a sense they were cyborgs, and, um, you know, so maybe you can draw on some Cybermen um, experience. He was, uh, you know, as we saw in in uh, this last series, yeah, he, he was, um, there was a scene there, well, there was a, um, a story there where he was, um, cyber um he was partially it was being turned into a cyberman all right well that wraps up the news like i said this is a, a shorter episode of talk to podcast so we're gonna get into our interview right after this my name is alice trouton and you are listening to the doctor who podcast So as I mentioned earlier, this episode of Doctor Who Podshock is sort of a behind-the-scenes insight edition. So uh, so our selection for Audible this week will be equally um, within the same, um, you know, <laughs> in the same tradition of that. So uh, as you probably know, if you're a listener to Doctor Who Podshock with any frequency, that Audible is the premier provider of digital audiobooks. Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from in all different genres, including science fiction, of course, but also thrillers, romance, comedy, business, you name the genre, Audible has it. Audible titles will play on your iPhone, Kindle, Android, over 500 devices for listening anytime and anywhere. And for you, listeners of Doctor Who Podshock, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial so you have a chance to check out their service. And if it turns out that you don't like their service, it's not for you, fine. That's no problem. Cancel 
and keep your free audiobook. To download your free audiobook, simply go to audibletrial.com slash podshock. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash podshock for your free audiobook. And the recommendation for this time, you can choose whatever you like. We just like to choose recommendations and somehow relate it to the, the issue, that, the issue, the, the, the episode of Dr. Podshock that we're, um, that, that, that we're currently in. So, um. Uh, the recommendation this time is Doctor Who at the BBC Volume 1. And we may have chosen this once before in the past. I'm not sure. Uh, regardless, it's still... Uh, for the for, To celebrate the 50th, 50th anniversary, it still holds up today. Even though um, it's, it's, it's a little dated now since it only covers, I believe, up to the, um, the first 30 years. That, um, it's narrated by Nicholas Courtney, who, as you know, is, plays the Brigadier. And it's um, it's written by Michael Stevens. It also has uh, features that have uh, that that contains um, uh, John Pertwee, Tom Baker, Terry Nation, K Nine Daleks. So um, lots of extracts from different things. Uh, some at the time had been unheard of since their first broadcast, and um, it kind of illustrates how. The program, Doctor Who, has become a national institution. I should say an international institution now, um, you know, held in high regards by adults and children alike. So um, let's um, let's hear a little bit from that right now. This is, um, again, Doctor Who at the BBC, Volume 1. News has just come in that President Kennedy has been shot. There's no news yet of his condition. The world was shocked to hear of the assassination of President Kennedy. Most people can remember where they were and what they were doing when they heard the news. Perhaps they were watching the television and hearing this for the very first time. The theme tune that has for the last three decades introduced the weekly adventures of a most remarkable time traveler, Doctor Who. Hello, I'm Nicholas Courtney. If you're a Doctor Who fan, you'll probably remember me as one of the Doctor's closest allies, Brigadier Alastair Gordon Lethbridge-Stewart. Having had the privilege to work with the Doctor on numerous occasions, I hope that I'm the best qualified to give you the complete story behind the world's longest-running science fiction television series and the reasons why it's lasted so long. Now, 30 years is a lot of time to cover in just 60 minutes, so... Let's journey back to a fog-shrouded London. To be precise, Saturday, November 23rd, 1963. Inside a small scrap merchant in Totters Lane, two young schoolteachers, Ian Chesterton and Barbara Wright, are anxiously searching for one of their pupils, Susan Foreman, little realising that they're about to embark on a journey into the unknown. It's a police box. What's he doing here? Well, these things are usually on the street. I feel it. Do you feel it? It's a faint vibration. It's alive! When a white-haired, elderly gentleman in Edwardian clothes arrives on the scene, Ian and Barbara force their way into the police box and make a startling discovery. You don't deserve any explanations. You pushed your way in here, uninvited and unwelcome. I think you ought to leave. It's an illusion. It must be. Illusions, indeed. You say you can't fit an enormous building into one of your smaller sitting rooms? No. 
But you've discovered television, haven't you? Yes. Then by showing an enormous building on your television screen, you can do what seemed impossible, couldn't you? At the end of the first episode, the doctor sets the controls and the school teachers find themselves unwilling passengers on a voyage through time and space. But how did this all begin? Well, as a matter of fact, in a small BBC office. A number of studio executives were trying to decide on a new children's programme to fill the Saturday evening tea time slot between Grandstand and the pop music quiz Jukebox Jury. A number of ideas were considered and then rejected. When the BBC's then head of drama, Sidney Newman, suggested a science fiction... And again, that's, that was uh, Nicholas Courtney narrating there. Um, you know, unfortunately, he's uh, no longer with us. Uh, but his spirit lives on through works like this. You can hear him and his um, involvement with Doctor Who, as well as um, some of the history there. Um, which is, if, if you're a new fan, it's it's good to know where where the series came from. And it's it's even you know we always encourage you to go back and you know and and see those uh, earlier episodes and try them out for size. So once again, you can get this could be your free selection for Audible to get your to download your free audio book. Simply go to audibletrial.com slash pachak. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash pachak for your free audio book. And if you're driving or somehow, you know, you can't get to the website now, can't write it down. Fear not. Just go to uh, pachak.net or gallifreyembassy.org and you'll see links to the Audible promotion there as well. Welcome back to Doctor Who Pachak. And as I said, we have an interview today, a classic interview. And this is of someone of some historical nature to Doctor Who, because he's been on a lot of Doctor Who, but you probably might not know that, or you might not have known you've seen him in Doctor Who. So who is this that you may be wondering? Uh, who is this um, person? It's none other than Terry Walsh. Yes, you know Terry Walsh. He, his name ring, rolls off the tongue with Doctor Who, right? Well, it should, but it doesn't. He's a, he's a fight arranger and stuntman for Doctor Who, uh, or I should say was, uh, especially during the John Pertry era, the third Doctor, and uh, Tom Baker's fourth Doctor period, uh, at least the beginning of that. Uh, he's... Um, um, well, one of the reasons why we're honoring Terry Walsh is that he would have been, um, on the 5th of May, he would have been 75. Unfortunately, we lost him in uh, 2002 uh, due to cancer. He, uh, unfortunately, he passed at the age of, um, I believe it was 62, if I'm not mistaken. We honor his 75th birth, what would have been his 75th birthday, with this interview. And this comes courtesy of Chuck Rabb. And once again, we thank Chuck Rabb of The Chuck Rabb Show for um, for allowing us to um, to rebroadcast this interview, uh, this was obviously um, done while he was alive, and this was um, I believe this was done in the mid '80s. In fact, I first met Terry Walsh back in 1985, and it was um, the um, Who event um, in 1985, uh, King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that's when this interview was um, conducted. So um, even though I'm not conducting it myself, Chuck Rabb is um, conducting the interview, 
I was in the building. <laughs> so um, anyway, so um, again, uh, Terry Walsh. Uh, oh, and um, I don't think it's included in this interview, unfortunately, but he tells a great story, him and John Pertry, about this um, compass. I believe it was a ship's compass uh, um, uh, that... Um, a ship that, um, like a, a large, a naval, not, not naval, but a, a marine vessel where, um, well, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to tell the story because maybe it's somewhere else and, um, it's better if you hear it from them, but it's, it's a funny story about a, a missing compass. Um, and I don't, when I say compass, I don't mean like a small little pocket compass. I mean, this is a ship's compass. It's something big, you know, it's, 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 it's something like something that you would put on, put in display somewhere. It's, it's a big thing. So as I was saying, uh, Terry Walsh, um, he was a fight arranger, a stuntman for Doctor Who. He was also uh, doubled for John Pertwee and Tom Baker. His credits, he, he <laughs> he's mostly uncredited for his work because most of his uh, parts are uncredited, so he doesn't get enough credit for his work. Uh, but just to uh, give you a taste of what he's done as fight, as fight arranger, he has worked on The Curse of Paladin, The Mutants, uh, The Green Death, Time Warrior... Uh, Death to the Daleks, uh, the Santaran Experiment, the Android Invasion, the Seeds of Doom, the Deadly Assassin, the Face of Evil, the Androids of Terror, and as an actor, because he, he, like I said, you've probably seen him in many parts uh, during this era of Doctor Who, uh, he, he, he's played, you know, these small parts, and like I said, for the most part, they go uncredited. Uh, sometimes he does appear in the credits, though. So you could see him... Um, um, as an actor in The Smugglers, The Web of Fear, The Invasion, uh, Androids of Death, Inferno, Terror of the Autons, The Mind of Evil, Colony in Space, The Sea Devils, The Mutants, The Time Monster, The Green Death, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, Death to the Daleks, The Monster of Peladon, Planet of Spiders, Robot, The Ark in Space, The Suntaran Experiment, Genesis of the Daleks, Planet of Evil, The Power of Krull, and The Creature from the Pit. So it uh, gives you a little uh, taste there. So you, um, like I said, if, if you've seen any of those stories, you might have seen him and just might not know who he is. Um, he did do a lot of doubling for John Pertwee because there is a somewhat of a physical um, resemblance there as far as um, stature goes. And, and I think he had um, the lighter you know, hair as well, not, not the white flocky hair, but... Um, you know, just that it, it wasn't dark brown is what I'm getting at. So without any further ado, let's go into the interview with Terry Walsh. And once again, thanks to Chuck Rabb of The Chuck Rabb Show for allowing us to, um, to rebroadcast this interview. I'm Chuck Rabb, and with me is Terry Walsh, who is a famous stuntman from Great Britain, once working for the BBC, and now, I guess, working on your own. Are you working on your own, uh, Terry? Uh, well, everybody in England is freelance, but uh, I did work for the BBC almost continuously for about eight years. Terry Walsh, what kind of work did you do for the BBC? Uh, mostly Doctor Who, funnily enough. Uh, I did some other shows for them, but during my eight-year reign, I did mostly Doctor Who. What did you do in Doctor Who? What kind of characterizations or stunts did you do? Usually, um, I doubled one or other of the doctors because there are certain physical acts that actors aren't allowed to do by insurance companies. And you can't really have an actor with a black eye um, if it's all shot out of sequence. So it was largely doubling, and I was usually also everybody that got killed. Harry, you've also done work with uh, 
Peter O'Toole, Roger Moore. How do you get involved with something like that? The hardest thing about stunt work is actually getting the job. And normally you're booked by either a producer or a director. And if you just know enough producers and directors, then you continue to work. I'm Chuck Rabb, and my guest is Terry Walsh, who is a famous stuntman from Great Britain. Terry Walsh, how did you get involved in the first place with doing stunts? I came out of the army, and I couldn't settle down. And then a friend of mine who used to supply cars asked me to take a Jeep to a location for him. And I saw two stunt guys trying to do a cross-country chase. And I had recently been doing that with Arabs firing real bullets at me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is for me, this is easy. And then I saw a guy doing a 60-foot fall, which I couldn't have done. And I met an old man, an old stuntman, and I did two years' apprenticeship with him. I just used to go around with him, and he would explain why he was going to do this stunt this way and how he was going to do it. And at lunchtime, he'd make me do it, and I might fall down the stairs ooh, you know, six, eight times until I'd done it right. So I had a very good apprenticeship. Terry, from doing stunts like that, you ended up being hired as a primary stuntman and also training others. How did that, how did that come about? Uh, well, it is, it's a logical progression. Once you've been in the business long enough, if you have any get-up-and-go and brains, uh, you start to learn camera techniques, you start to, to think. Uh, you don't just go around being incredibly butch and jumping off things. You, you start to want more. And the logical progression is to become the stunt coordinator, in which case you have to train stuntmen if they can't do the job. And certainly you have to train actors, because actors obviously need to be taught what they have to do. Terry, you get involved with movies and you get involved with series. How does that happen? It depends, you see. Um, if I mean, I am a specialist swordsman, and so therefore um, a big medieval movie came up and I was going to do a TV show. The movie was going to last for seven months. I took the movie. Um, and then another producer came up with a different TV show, and so therefore I took the TV show. It, you go for the money. In this case, it was probably Robin Hood that came up as the TV series? It was Robin of Sherwood, yes. And uh, thanks to you kind American viewers, uh, it means I get lots of money because I get uh, residual fees on American showings. Well, you call it lots of money. An American may not call it lots of money. You built a, a porch on your house, and an American might buy a cliff, a house, and part of the sea landscape that's around it for the movie that they do. So you're still not earning that kind of money that you would in America. How do you feel about working in America in the future? Um, at my stage of the game, it really is who you know and who knows you. Now, in England, I know quite a lot of people. A lot of people know me. A lot of people know my work. In America, A, I'm in the wrong union, and B, I am the guy about who everybody in the film business says, who? So I've got no chance of coming to America because nobody knows me. It's funny. My guest is Terry Walsh, and he is very well-known here and becoming even more well-known in the American uh, states. And yet you say you don't think that you're widely recognized. Why do you say that, really? Um, Television shows are watched by members of the public largely. Um, The number of film executives and television executives who watch, um, obviously, is much, much less. And so, therefore, they're the ones that give you the employment. Now, they... Nine times out of ten, they're very happy with the American stuntmen, who are extremely good. Uh, Why should they employ a foreigner? Yes, I can understand that, but you're also capable of taking a whole stunt crew and training and doing, so that you're multi-talented in many respects. Isn't that evident? 
Uh, it's very nice of you to say so, but then so are a lot of American stunt coordinators. Um, you've got some very, very good guys over here, and they're very hot competition, and, and because they're the local boys, I'm always going to lose out. Does that mean that you're only going to be doing projects in Great Britain? I occasionally, or frequently, in fact, do work abroad. I've worked in uh, Israel, France, um, Germany, Yugoslavia, Mexico, um, but they're usually British finance pictures. Uh, it's just the way the cookie crumbles. We don't get too many American stuntmen working in England um, because we have English stuntmen, and so therefore the Americans quite rightly say, we don't want you working over in America because we've got Americans who can do your job, and they have. My guest is Terry Walsh, who is a very well-known stuntman and also a stunt producer. In other words, he takes care of stunt crews and trains them. And he's basically working in the Great Britain area at this particular moment in time. Terry, when you look at the progress of stunts through uh, the time that you've been working in movies and in series, do you see any kind of great jumps, or do you find that stunts are simply uh, attacked in a different way because of the direction or the production, and the stunts themselves really remain the same? Well, the, the requirements of the stunt, the actual physical stunt itself may remain the same. <clears throat> Excuse me. But um, we are developing techniques day by day. Uh, new techniques come along, new equipment comes along. And sometimes if you think about a specific job, you can design a piece of equipment and then you can have that piece of equipment written in. Um, and so you've approached the job from a different angle. Uh, everything has been done before. The art of coordinating now is to try and either do it better, which we all hope to do, or do it maybe slightly differently so the, the audiences don't get too blasé. You know, I should mention to the audience that you were a guest on my radio show on Talk 900 AM in the Philadelphia area, and that you had mentioned uh, an injury that had occurred, so that there are medical emergencies that happen that stuntmen uh, are not invulnerable. You are a human being. How do you cope with injuries? Well, we usually cry a lot and whine. Um, no, if you have what I call bread and butter work, I, I always have a first aid nurse or a paramedic on the set with a, a very, very big first aid kit, including resuscitators, uh, because um, it's very easy to get hurt. If we're going into a sequence, um, I don't ever go into a sequence and expect people to get hurt. Um, as far as I'm concerned, if they follow the choreography and nobody makes a mistake, then in theory nobody gets hurt. But then we all know about theory. So if I think it's a little bit hairy, then I'll have an ambulance and a doctor because there's no film is worth two hours driving a car to get to the hospital with a broken leg. It's not worth it. Terry Walsh, at least you've discovered that you can help other people. But there are some things that happen over the cumulative damage of time. And in your case, it was a right elbow. And the right elbow had to be scraped and put back together. Do you feel that that's a normal aspect of being a stuntman, that you just have to take these injuries as they come? It's an occupational hazard. If you break a bone, nine times out of ten you've made a mistake. I swing a very heavy broadsword on Robin and Sherwood teaching people, and I've been doing it for three years your elbow is going to suffer. It's one of those things. All stuntmen, whether they be English or American, are going to suffer from arthritis in their old age because of the knocks and bangs they take. Um, I'm having such a good life and I'm having so much fun doing what I do, I'll pay the penalty later. Um, and not happily, 
I mean, I'd rather not have arthritis, but uh, it's worth it to do what I do and have so much fun. If it's fun that you're after, then you've got it. But what about money in Great Britain? Is there some way that you can make sure that your life is absolutely secure as a stuntman, that you have a, an adequate, I, I don't know what to call it, a pension, a, a something put away, a wholesome attitude? It's more than a wholesome attitude. It's money. How do you do it? Um, you're not asking me to tell you about my foreign bank accounts. No, no, not at all. <laughs> uh, which I, of course, don't have. Um, we have a system through our IRS where you can take up to 17% of your earnings and plow them straight into an insurance endowment policy, um, which I think all stuntmen who are earning what we consider in England quite good money uh, are doing because it lowers your tax threshold. So if you take £10,000... Um, and put it into an endowment policy each year, um, that makes you fairly secure, and it lowers your tax threshold by £10,000. Maybe this is an unfair question, but maybe I should ask it. In the American film industry, people who are involved with the industry, as I mentioned before, end up with a huge plot of property and money in the bank and a new Ferrari in the garage, and you end up with a new front porch. There is a heck of a difference. Do you feel that that kind of difference is worth it if it were there in England for the same job that you're doing? Um, by English standards, I get more money than my bank manager um, because English rates of pay are lower than American rates of pay. Um, what you have to bear in mind, that if you have a shop that sells in your town, you only have so many people to whom you can sell your goods. If you have a chain of shops that sell countrywide, uh, in America particularly, um, you'd have to have thousands and thousands of shops, and so therefore you make thousands and thousands of times one shop. Now, England is a very small market. Um, I mean, I imagine a network in England is probably just a small area in the States, so your market is so much bigger uh, that obviously you sell to more people, so therefore you make more money. Unfortunately, England's very small, so you only sell to a smaller number of people. You can't answer it. That's, uh, that's just the way of life. Then I can say, aha, you've been in Doctor Who, and the Doctor Who episodes that you have already filmed years ago are seen in about 53 or 54 different countries and by over 100 million people. What happened to the residuals? Uh, your SAG and our British Actors' Equity have the same ideals. Uh, your SAG has something below the belt that our equity hasn't. And unfortunately, our equity... Um, in my opinion, are not a very strong union. Uh, just recently, the stuntmen section of this union have uh, become very militant, and we actually now write our own agreements, and we don't consult uh, the trade union at all. We just present them with a fait accompli. In past years, the agreements were very poor. Uh, I keep on getting residual checks from little countries like Addis Ababa for nine pence English. I don't know what that comes to in, in cents, but I tell you, it's really pennies. You were once joking with me, as a matter of fact, about uh, the Doctor Who episode where you would order a particular type of a Sten gun, a gun that is an automatic weapon, and they were saying that, I'm sorry, we can't give you uh, bullets. Why couldn't they give you the bullets for the weapon? Well, the budget wouldn't stand for it. Bullets are ninepence each. <laughs> and uh, the budgets were so low that uh, they couldn't afford it. I should mention, if there is any noise that's coming through the tape in the background, we're recording this live from the Valley Forge Convention Complex, 
And uh, you are uh, also part, Terry Walsh, of a convention that's being held here on the weekend. And you've flown in from Great Britain in order to do this convention, which is a very large one here on the East Coast, having to do with Doctor Who. It's amazing that although you have been part of Doctor Who, that you're also part of so many different kinds of movies. When you look at a movie, Terry Walsh, and you look at the stunts that are involved, do you have any choice but to do the stunts? Or can you talk to a director and say, I'd like this stunt done a little bit more uh, pointedly, a little better? Uh, well, Chuck, uh, when you get a script and when you discuss a script with the director, uh, he will tell you your ideas and or he will tell you his ideas. And then you tell him your ideas and... You either come to a compromise or if the director is a very hard-headed guy, um, he will insist on having it done his way. And if his way is going to hurt somebody, um, you get on your bicycle and pedal home. Sounds like the way I do business sometimes myself. Terry, that leads me to my next question. There is no doubt in my mind that you would be a very fine director, either here in America or in Great Britain. What do you think about being a director? Um, well, I'm starting to do little action unit direction job, second unit directing. Um, sometimes I think I'd like to be a director, but I don't really want all that hassle with, direct, uh, with producers telling me that I've only got two days to shoot a sequence. I know it's going to take three to do it properly. And I'm not really interested in talking heads, um, which is, you know, the close-ups uh, um, or personal meaningful relationships. I want to shoot people getting blown up and trains crashing. I, I want to play cowboys and Indians. It reminds me a little bit of Alfred Hitchcock. Although he did get remembered sometimes for the talking heads, he never used them very much. He only used them enough so that you knew that there were two people or more talking together to make a plot. The rest of it was all action. Do you like that block-in that is done before actual shooting? I I like to, to block everything in, if that's what you mean. Um, you're talking about the sort of proper rehearsal. Yes, I'm a great believer in as much rehearsal as I can possibly get because you need to rehearse people until they're doing it mechanically. And once they're doing it mechanically, it looks mechanical. Uh, and once they're confident, then an actor can then start to act as well. So what you're getting is not just a fight, you're getting a performance as well. Terry Walsh, when you would block in something like this, would you know exactly what your camera angles are? Would you have them done on videotape first as well as just rehearsal? Um, occasionally, the, there is only one place for the camera. Um, as you block a fight, as you choreograph a fight, you have to be aware all the time of where the camera will be and where the next cut will be. Um, I have a small video camera I use um, particularly if we're rehearsing away from the director so that I can show him what we've got and if he wants any changes, then I can just mark it where he wants it changed. My guest is Terry Walsh, who's a very well-known British stuntman and also teaches stuntman, has a whole group of stuntmen working for him at any particular point in time. Terry Walsh, when you look at this blockout that you've done on videotape and you know where the cutaway is, do the directors usually go along with what you think or can you reach a compatible decision and the director tells you, well, I'd like a cutaway there and you agree? Um, well, it is basically when it comes down to it, it's the director's fault what finally escapes under the screen. Uh, so therefore, unless, um, unless the cutaway is in, that he wants is in a really bad place, you have to let the man have his choice. It's his name that's going on in the show. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the same Terry Walsh who wishes to be a director, so it's all going to be his fault. What do you think about that? Uh, well, that's the excitement.
if it's all your fault. Um, you see, when you start as a stuntman, you make a mistake, you get hurt. Or you look really silly. When you develop into a stunt coordinator, um, you can get people hurt if you make a mistake, or you can get them looking really silly. And production costs being what they are per minute, also you look really silly with a production company. Now, that's pressure. Um, but once you've been doing any pressure job for a while, it becomes easier. So when you become a director or a second unit director, you shoot all day long and you cross your fingers and hope you've got the right angles, but you don't find out until 24 hours later when you see dailies. And when you're watching the dailies, that is pressure. Because if you've done it wrong, you have to take a unit back and do it again. Sorry, Walsh. As I'm thinking about that and realizing that you'd like to be a director and probably will be a very fine one, when you look at a script that might be coming your way, will you really be able to make a reasonable sense of the action involved instead of using talking heads, as you had mentioned? Uh, if I was directing, I probably would know what I would do. Um, if I'm working for a director, I've got a, a little secret sort of um, method which helped me a great deal. You go and see the director before you read the script and you ask him about the characters and you ask him to give you a a little potted biography on the characters and why has he cast this actor to play this part? What is he trying to get out of the part that that actor will give it? So then, when you then go home and read the script and you start to flesh out the action sequences, they're going to be in character. So you're not going to have a man who in the film uh, lives with his mother and works behind the butter counter at uh, the local supermarket, uh, suddenly jump over the counter and become a karate fiend. He will fight as his character would fight. And if I read a script and it says, for instance, um, they ride up to the castle. Now, I might see the Walt Disney Castle in the blue sky, and the director might see a dirty old grey pile of stones in the pouring rain. Now, I need to know if I'm working for him, I need to know what the pictures are in his mind, because then I've got to make my pictures look like his. My guest is Terry Walsh, who's a very well-known stuntman and also stunt coordinator from Great Britain. Terry, when you look at the idea of the director now working with the producer, and you are the director, what do you see as a reasonable attitude for the director to take? There is no such thing as a reasonable attitude for a director. A director goes in to do business. A producer goes in to do business. Uh, if the producer can bring the film in under budget, um, very good for him. So therefore he puts pressure on the director. The director needs three days to shoot a sequence. If the producer can con him into doing it in two days, they've saved money, they come in under budget, and everybody's had to compromise. So you get directors with heart trouble and blood pressure, and they're always frustrated because they've never been able to do exactly what they wanted to do. Now, in some cases, as in uh, that big western you've had that went down the tubes, um, it's possibly a good thing that the director should be reined back but there, um, there is a sort of school of producers coming up now who've come out of the accounts office. And so therefore, uh, they look at the script and it says custard pie fight, and they get a custard pie. And then they worry and wonder why, when the first take didn't go, they have to wait an hour to get another one. You've got the old-time producer. He's still going to try and bring it in on budget, but he knows that if you've got a custard pie fight, you buy a dozen custard pies, you buy two dozen custard pies, and if they get it right the second take, you're going to throw 22 pies away. Oh, what a shame. But he was there, and he got the shot, and he didn't waste time. So it's, it's very difficult being a producer, I think, and it must be very frustrating. Um, 
being a director. I don't, I'm not sure I'd want to be a director on a big movie. I'd much rather just do my Cowboys and Indians numbers. As my last question, I know that you would be a new generation director. That is, you'd be able to see both points of view, just as you've mentioned that to the audience right now. As a new generation director, and looking at the costs and how many days it would take to film and the outcome of the movie, how much money it would make, would you still think that you can be able to do everything you want to do, or would you settle for less than what you're able to do? You're as honest as this business lets you be. Of course you'd settle for less. Uh, grudgingly, uh, you'd settle for less. Or you could go the other way, and you could um, go somewhere away from civilization and away from union restrictions. Uh, and I'm not against unions, but a young film producer stroke director in England uh, who wants to do a small drama is so tied by union regulations that he has to have a full camera crew, he has to have so many people there, he has to do this, he has to do that, and his already minuscule budget is taken up with wages before he sports stock and rented cameras. Um, it would be nice if the unions could get their heads together and let the young guys have a start um, by just maybe taking an operator out and a camera, and then they could spend their money on something else to make the film. But uh, at the moment, it costs you so much money, you know, up front that uh, very few people can afford to make cheap films. Especially when the investors allow themselves a particular return and expect that particular return. But let's say that you made your movie, you made this great movie that you really wanted to make, you hoped to make. And in the end, you made a great deal of money for the investors. Does that put more pressure upon you, do you think, so that you never make a flop? Oh, yeah. I mean, if, if your first picture turns out to be um, a Star Wars, um, and then the pressure's really on you because uh, anything else, you can only be going downhill. Um, by the same token, it's an awful lot easier if your first picture's a Star Wars to get, picture, you know, get money for the second picture. Um, I don't know. I suppose it would be would be worse but then if you go to the other extreme if your first picture people stay away from it in droves uh, you're never going to get the money for a second picture so you know what do you do i agree in other words you have to put it out on the line you have to use your reputation you have to use everything that uh, has been given to you and produce and direct and whatever else that you are capable of doing don't you agree you've got to kick bite scramble and kill um, and if you can get it on the screen and people like it, you were right. And uh, if it's a failure, you were wrong. I agree. My guest has been Terry Walsh, who is a stuntman from Great Britain, stunt coordinator, and presently becoming a very fine director. Thank you, Terry, very much for being a guest on the show. And thank you for having me, Chuck. And thank you both, Chuck Rabb and Terry Walsh. Um, as I said, it's unfortunate that uh, Terry's no longer with us. Um, you know, he, we lost him in, in 2002 uh, due to cancer. So, um, yes, um, I don't know if he ever got that arthritis that he's mentioned, you know, in his later years or not. Uh, I should mention some of his other credits outside of Doctor Who include, um, well, you heard some of it, but also um, since that interview had taken place, um, he went on to work with uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, which we, we just lost um, um, Bob Hoskins. From, the, um, from that movie as well, just recently, too, was, uh, coincidentally. He uh, worked on um, uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and Willow as well. Uh, 
So uh, he would have been um, 75, as I said, um, on the 5th of May. And uh, um, I realized that interview was um, not a lot about, not a lot of that interview content was specifically about Doctor Who, but more about the tr- the industry in itself, the trade industry of stuntmen and working in the um, television and movie production and all that. And I hope you found it interesting. I did. And uh, maybe we'll have another interview with him at some point, possibly where he's talking more about Doctor Who. But um, I, I still found it interesting, and I hope you did too as well. So I want to uh, take a moment just to thank those that have become that have returned to becoming Pachak supporting subscribers. I know after Superstorm Sandy, you know the show went on hiatus unfortunately because um, you know there, there was the recovery process and rebuilding and um, reconstruction and um, demolition before that and so forth. And it took a while before we were able to get back on our feet. Uh, at least with Doctor Who Pachak. So, um, and, you know, and since then, you know, I know several of our supporting subscribers have returned to the fold, and I want to thank those. And uh, some have asked how to rejoin. Simply go and sign up again. You can go to uh, pachak.net or arttrap.com. There are uh, banners on the top there, how, you know, to become a uh, Doctor Who Pachak supporting subscriber. And for a, multi- uh, for a low monthly uh, fee, um, You'll be helping to support the show, and we can go further. And, you know, now more than ever, uh, we need your support. So uh, I do want to thank all those that have been supporting the show through this whole process and um, and those that are coming back to the fold as well. And, um, you know, I, I understand why a lot of you know had left, because the show wasn't being produced for that period of time, and it's understandable. So once again, podshock.net or arttrap.com, you'll find links and banner ads there that you can link to it and uh, just sign up. I believe it's, um, you know, it's just, I think, $5 a month, and um, it really does, you know, help us um, to go a long way. So now let's get to feedback, your feedback. We always want to hear from you and what you have to say. Uh, it doesn't have to be about stuntmen, or, but it could be. Anything Doctor Who related is, um, you know, we're, we're open to, or um, even if it's um, a Doctor Who spin-off show like Saturday and Adventures or uh, Torchwood or something like that. If it's, it's you know, if, it's, if it has Doctor Who characters in it, it's still Doctor Who related. You can always send us feedback. Um, probably the best thing to do is um, go to our website, podshock.net, and up on the top there, there's a, a tab there for feedback, and click that, and we'll give you all various ways to send feedback. We have the Podshock Public Call Box, which is 206-337-4699. Now, I realize sometimes that number does change, and that's somewhat beyond our our control, unfortunately. So uh, you do want to check there from time to time to make sure that number is still the same. So um, at this time, it's 206-337-4699. It's a voicemail system. Just call and leave a short message, maybe like three minutes, and add your name to it so we know we can introduce you. also, you could uh, record a voice memo on your smartphone and just email it to feedback at podshock.net for inclusion in the show. Once again, that email address is feedback at podshock.net. So we have feedback from Joe from Wilmington, California, and this is what Joe had to say. Hi, this is Joe from Wilmington, California, and I've been wanting to call for a long time. I have a lot of things to say about the last couple months of Doctor Who. Uh, When I heard recently that the Gallifrey Convention sold out in a matter of minutes, 
And then people talking about how Doctor Who's more popular than ever and that Matt Smith made Doctor Who so popular. I have to question those statements. I was a fan back in 1983. I attended the Ultimate Celebration Convention in Chicago, and there were at least 20,000 people in attendance. And in my opinion, Doctor Who was bigger in the 80s than it is today, at least in the United States. When I was at that convention in 83, I was lucky enough to not have to wait in line for Tom Baker's autograph because he walked right up to me. I was just a kid at the time. He walked up to me, signed my celebration book, and I asked him about why he didn't appear in the 20th anniversary special. And he told me maybe he'd appear in the 50th anniversary special, which, which at the time seemed like kind of a joke. Well, there I was on November 23rd, 2013 in the theater, and I kind of broke into tears when I saw Tom Baker there on the screen because I'd been waiting 30 years for that appearance. So that meant a lot to me. Um, just a couple of, one other thing I'd like to mention was that I, a couple of weeks ago, I went to Santa Monica to see Olaf Pooley. Uh, a couple days after he turned 100, of course, he was Professor Stallman from Inferno, and he looked like he was in great health. He reads books. His artwork was outstanding. So it was great to meet Olaf Pooley. I know you mentioned that a few weeks ago, and I, no one had reported back on that. So I'm glad the podcast is back, and good luck, and keep up the good work. Thank you. And thank you, Joe. Thank you for your support, and uh, thank you for your feedback, and you know, that's uh, also it's amazing that you saw Tom Baker back then and he made those comments about, um, you know, not appearing on the in the 20th anniversary special. But perhaps he'll be back for the 50th. And lo and behold, um, well, uh, spoiler alert, I'm assuming at least again, I'm assuming we've all seen the 50th anniversary special. If you listen to this podcast, I'll be surprised if you haven't yet. But interesting point about conventions and fandom and popularity now i don't know as i said you know as i mentioned in that previous interview with terry walsh that i was at that convention it was a uh at that time it was a, it was a spirit of light convention i believe that was the organizer if i'm not mistaken who did who event um 1985 that was and it was uh in king of prussia uh pennsylvania and many people from the east coast doctor who fans flocked to that convention and it was um it, I even I was at another Doctor Who convention at the same venue, I believe it was, or, or, or in that area uh, previously um, with Colin Baker and John Nathan Turner, um, and that had a, a large crowd. But this uh, Who event brought in more uh, of the uh, more guests, and it brought in more fans as well. And there is a difference. I you know I think today I think Doctor Who's more mainstream today in the U.S. You know, where in the 1980s, it was it was intense with diehard fans. With, with There was a core of, of real, true Doctor, you know, Doctor Who fans that, that um, lived and breathed Doctor Who. And um, they were at these conventions. And we had fan clubs that, and local chapters that were very popular, um, you know, including the Gallifreyan Embassy at that time. There was other clubs um, as well, the Pydarians of Princeton in Jersey and Jersey Jaggeroth and um, Unearthly Children in New Jersey. And I'm not going to name them all because I can't remember them all, but uh, um, there were many. Now, today, you see Doctor Who on, at least least in New York City, uh, BBC America had it on buses, on bus stop um, um, billboards. Um, It's it's on... um, 
uh, Cone, not, not, uh, what's his name? Craig Ferguson had uh, has a TARDIS on his desk, has a, pol- a police box on his uh, interview desk on, on his late night show, and he has interviewed many of the uh, actors that have appeared in uh, in Doctor Who recently. So that really wasn't happening in the 1980s, um, as you said. Tom Baker sort of like went up to you, and um, it's kind of hard to like at conventions now if. If you were at um, San Diego Comic Con, and um, you know there, there was a Doctor Who actor there, they, they sort of would have to like corral them so that they wouldn't go into the crowds because it might just create a, a, a uncontrollable scene. And it's you know, I was at a CVS, a CVS pharmacy. I don't know if they're nationwide. If, if whoever you know, if you're listening out, you know, in the UK, it's a pharmacy chain. Uh, it's pretty mainstream, um, and I saw Doctor Who merchandise there, and that's the, when I saw that I said, "Oh, you know, it's <laughs> it's mainstream now." You know, when in the nineteen eighties, I had to go to either like Doctor Who, like um, comic book, sci fi specialty stores or conventions to get your Doctor Who merchandise uh, or order it. You know, from the UK or um, you know various uh, um, maybe you know places that are situated in the states that sold Doctor Who merchandise. It was hard to find, so I think today. It's definitely more mainstream. Now, the fandom that... Now, like you mentioned Gallifrey 1. They had sold out very quickly, I think within 75 minutes. And um, and Gallifrey 1 is probably like the most similar convention to those conventions back in the 80s as far as um, uh, the, the feel of them. It's, um, you know, and, and, and attracts like... Well, I, I haven't... Um, in, in the past few years, unfortunately, uh, due to lack of resources, I haven't been able to attend. But I was there... Uh, for several years um, in, in the um, um, up until that point, and um, you know, and, and it had that same like type of fan where you know the you, you know, the cosplayers and um, so I, I think some of those some of that experience some of that flavor from the eighties still exists, but it's different. It's different at other like like maybe at. Um, New York um, Comic Con, or and I haven't been to San Diego Comic Con, but from everything that I see, it has a similar atmosphere to it. Um, it's it's like I said, it is more mainstream today, though maybe maybe back in the ninety, I mean back in the eighties, they it, the, the fans were more demonstrative with their um, fandom. You know, it, I, I I can't really. Pinpoint it. You know what? Maybe I'll revisit this question when um, when Dave and Ian are back on the show, or, or we have someone else here, and and get their take on it as well. I mean, someone who's maybe have been to uh, some of the fandom uh, events back in the eighties and kind of compare compare it to uh, to today's uh, fandom. I, I do think there's a difference, but it's kind of hard to um, to delineate what that difference is. You know. And I, at least I'm having trouble with it myself. But, I, you know, there, there's definitely a different flavor to it. And um, But then again, there's a different flavor to the show as well. I mean, the show has changed considerably since then. And, you know, I you know, I think maybe Matt Smith deserves some, some credit. But I, I think it was building up, you know, with, with slowly with the Russell T. Davies um, era going into the, um, 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 obviously, uh, um, Stephen Moffat era and all that. And, I think the show was building momentum on its own, bringing it uh, BBC America, picking it up. I mean, originally it was on the Sci-Fi Channel; it was hard to find, and um, so I, I think there's a lot of factors involved in its popularity today 
I, I don't don't want to attribute it to just one person or one thing really, but I, I think there's a lot that 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 led up to it. I went to book signings in the '80s where JNT was at, and um, you know, and it attracted a crowd in the city. And uh, but I think if Stephen Moffat was doing that now, it would just there'll be a crowd, but it would also be a lot of um, you know press, and it's I, like I said, it, I, in a certain respect, maybe it is more popular, but I would say it's more mainstream than it was in the 80s definitely but it um but it made it but among those fans that were you know from the 80s maybe it was more intense um i don't know you know sometimes you we have rose colored glasses when we look in the at the you know in the past it's definitely a different flavor uh for, but sometimes that flavor is preserved in certain pockets of fandom and and it's always enjoyable uh when when you revisit that um those flavors from the 80s and like i said um uh, not many conventions do that or have that sometimes it's it, it does get captured i mean it's really just um, i'm i'm babbling i'm gonna stop babbling because <laughs> i'm not saying much so uh but like i said we'll, we'll revisit this at some point um and i'm because i'm interested in other people's takes on on this idea as well and, and what their feedback is and you know, I, I do think that it is more mainstream today. I, I think it's evident by, uh, at least here where I am, which is, um, you know, on the outskirts of New York City, it is definitely more. I mean, there were there there are, um, adverts for it on the trains, you know, and again, you could or just in casual conversation among people, you could say the TARDIS and they probably might know what they're talking about, where back in the 80s. In a non-conventional, non-science fiction, um, you know, um, environment, you know, when you're just at a uh, at a restaurant or uh, you know a bookstore, or whatever, you, if you, well, maybe a bookstore might be a bad example because there were Doctor Who books back then. But um, most people, most in a in your workplace, wherever that may be, if you had mentioned Doctor Who. You you might get one or two people that would know what you're talking about, but today, a lot of people do. <laughs> you know, if even if they're not fans, they're aware of it. So, I think it is more mainstream today. Whether I think, and I, but I do think there's a difference in the in the fandom though, and also in in the in the atmosphere at conventions as well. And um, you know, and I said sometimes that's that is preserved in certain conventions, and but other times it's not, and it's missing, and you feel that. Anyway, um, I, I promised I was going to stop, and I'm going to stop now. So, <laughs> oh, and a quick correction: I had mentioned that Unearthly Children, which is a local fan organization, a fan club, they're from Pennsylvania, not Jersey. I was mentioning some other Jersey groups, and somehow my mouth said Jersey when I meant Pennsylvania. So. Um, yeah, Unearthly Children, Pennsylvania. So, but I do want to thank everyone for listening. Um, we're going to wrap up the show here. We'll be back, and Dave and Ian are back for our next episode. Uh, it's um, It was going to be um, going out with this episode but uh, of Dr. Kupachak, but now it's, it's, it's uh, trust me, we got, it's, it's, it's good. It's going to come out, and hopefully you'll enjoy it as much as we're going to enjoy recording it. So, until then... Cheers, everyone. 
You have been listening to Doctor Who Podshock, presented to you by the fan-run GallifreyNMC.org. Doctor Who is owned and trademarked by the BBC. Doctor Who Podshock is not affiliated with the BBC in any way. Doctor Who Podshock theme music by Jeff Smith at thejeffsmith.com. This has been a production of Art Trap Productions and has been made possible by supporting subscribers and donations from listeners like you. This podcast is also supported by the Podchuck Podcast Companion app now in the iTunes App Store. Visit ArtTrap.com for more information on this and other podcasts. 